Thanks for downloading show 172 of the C-Suite podcast, which has been produced in partnership with Future Brand. Uh, My name is Russell Goldsmith. Uh, This episode was actually recorded at the end of 2022, uh, where we reviewed the findings of the 2022 Future Brand Index, the eighth year of the report, uh, where the focus was very much around sustainability and ESG credentials. We had a very international flavour to the show. I was joined online from New York by Lynn Field, Head of Strategy at Future Brand North America, uh, Pratik Ravel partner and head for ESG sustainability and climate solutions at Tata Consultancy Services and Professor Tonsi Whelan, the founding director of the NYU Stern Center for Sustainable Business. And then in Singapore was Anita Varshney, Global Vice President Strategy, SAP Sustainability Engineering at SAP. I started by asking Lynn to just set the scene for us on what the report is and why she was so keen to bring the panel together to discuss the findings. Sure. The Future Brand Index is an annual brand perception study of the largest companies in the world. It's now in its eighth year. We take the PwC global top 100 companies by market capitalization, and we re-rank them on brand perception strength based on a survey of over 3,000 business decision makers and informed professionals globally. So it really gives us insights into how future-proof the world's most prominent, largest companies actually are. This year's index shows that climate change is now seen as the fastest growing threat to business success. And we know that people globally are looking to brands for solutions. And our study shows that those taking meaningful action to address climate change are really reaping the rewards at levels we have never seen before in the index. So we thought there was no better time to convene a panel of experts who are on the front lines of this change to a more sustainable future. And we wanted just to reflect on the findings and talk about what brand leaders can learn from those who are performing the best in this year's study, and then what tangible actions they can take, what they can specifically do around sustainability in pursuit of their business and brand goals. And in terms of those brands, any particular highlights? You know, can you share the top five, for example, or, or what types of companies have moved up in the ranking? Absolutely, that's that's really what jumped out to us right away with this year's findings is what those top four or five brands really have in common. This year is that they are all focused on innovation and tangible, visible action related to green energy and sustainable solutions. So in the number one slot, we have NextEra Energy. Based in Florida, they're one of the world's largest utilities, huge investments in wind and solar. At number two, Reliance Industries, the Indian powerhouse across a variety of sectors, also in big investments in renewable energy, in building out digital infrastructure, building out the uh, infrastructure for electric vehicles across India. At number three, we have Cattle, C-A-T-L, a Chinese uh, battery manufacturer and technology company doing really interesting things. They're really a leading innovator around electric 
batteries. And at number four, we have TCS, the global IT services and consulting firm. Um, we'll hear much more about from Pratik today, I'm sure. Well, yeah, I mean, as I said, it's, it's great to have um, Pratik and, and Anita with us because, as, as, as I mentioned, both of them, um, both their companies are featured in the report and, and they both got a sustainability-focused role. So, yeah, Pratik, let, maybe let's start with you. Lynn just gave away you know, where you guys sit within the index. Um, so you've done extremely well this year. What do you think TCS have, have done to achieve that score? First of all, this is very exciting to see that how climate actions and sustainability initiatives of companies are now really reflecting in how companies are pursued globally, right? More tangibly, which is a very exciting in particular at TCS. So TCS is a part of the Tata Group, which since its inception has been highly focused on its impact, the business's impact on the society. And about 66% of Tata Sons is held by Tata Trust. So by virtue of it, a significant portion of our profit actually goes to Tata Trust. That is the history, that is uh, the momentum that we are building on. In particular, in recent years, what we have done is that we have committed to being net zero by 2030 using science-based target. We are in the process of that being evaluated and confirmed. Also, in last five or seven years, we have seen significant reduction across all business metrics as relevant to climate and sustainability from energy use to water to waste. On the social side, out of 600,000 colleagues worldwide, we have one third, or more than one third of our force, workforce is women colleagues. Uh, we have also seen increase in leadership, women leadership at a rate of 85% in the last five years. So, and that, going back to Lynn's point, TCS has seen one of the highest talent retention rate in last year, when, uh, which is uh, very well known as kind of the great resignation time period, right? So we have clearly seen uh, effects of the initiatives that we have taken across E, S, and G pillars within and also outside in our business. And what about in terms of how you're working with your clients in terms of sustainability? Can you comment on that? Because as I mentioned, there's a number of the brands, I don't know if you can talk about them individually, but there's a number of brands that within the index that, that you guys obviously work with or partner with, with as well. Most of the brands that we see in the index are our clients and we work with them in different capacity in all sectors, all 11 uh, sectors. We work with companies in all those sectors, big, small and medium across the world. Our focus is in a nutshell, helping companies through their what we call net zero emissions uh, business transformation. It's a journey. It starts from understanding what are the material goals to the business, what is the roadmap, what is the strategy, how do they mitigate risk, uh, what are innovative products and services that they can deliver or areas that they can expand in to really, first of all, leverage in terms of business opportunity and expand market opportunity, uh, but also help with this low emissions economy transformation. So we are helping uh, companies across the sectors in all these areas 
both through advisory as well as providing them digital support and solutions. Anita, talk us through how um, SAP are driving sustainability with your clients. So, of course, um, you know, uh, as Lynn, you mentioned, climate action is absolutely important topic and it has been for SAP for a very long time. But in the last couple of years, we increasingly focused on what capabilities can we bring to our customers to help them on this journey. And it goes without saying that sustainability is not just going to be solved by technology alone. And that's where we work with industry consortiums. We work on methodologies on really getting this ESG data out to the regulators, but also for business leaders to take action on. So when we look at sustainability for us, it's twofold. One, what we do in our own actions internally at SAP, where we have amazing leaders like Tonsi to give us advice on, you know, how are we going on this journey as we set our own carbon neutral targets or deliver on our commitments to our suppliers or look at the social aspects. So one side is what SAP does internally and how are we walking the talk. And that we have shown year over year achieving our targets, even though as a technology company, this is nothing what oil and gas and the other heavy emitters need to face, right? So we have a strong strategy on what we do internally, and we continue to kind of improve on that. Now, taking those learnings to what we bring to our clients, and and that's where I think the biggest brands sit on this list. And our commitment is to work closely with these brands as they tackle on climate, on on circularity, on the social topics. And we bring our best to them. And that is, you know, how can an intelligent enterprise help them to make key decisions, keeping in mind how are they doing on the environment performance? And that doesn't go, you know, just one way of, you know, creating a one yearly beautiful ESG report. But what do you actually do with that ESG data? How do you start to change your underlying business models? How do you start to act? And of course, you know, our customers have been in their businesses for a really, really long time. And that's where we heavily rely on, you know, partnerships, thought leaderships. You know, how can we work with our customers to define, for example, how shall carbon data be exchanged across the supply chain, right? How can you get the auditability in? So we go really deep into solving each of these ESG problems. And that makes us truly unique because our customers who really want to, you know, achieve their climate emissions, they can't do that unless they have the technology enabling them to do so. And that's exactly our role, to learn from our customers, to collaborate with our partners across the value chain, and then deliver on the emissions jointly together. Tonsi, you've been sat there very patiently for kind of 10, 10 11 minutes. So let's, let's get you into this uh, into the discussion. Do you want to start just by telling us a little bit about the Stern Centre for Sustainable Business and, and also what your role involves there? Absolutely. And first of all, let me say congratulations to Future Brands for the good work and to TCS and SAP for um, the quite well-deserved recognition. So terrific to be here with you all. So the Center for Sustainable Business at NYU Stern, which I founded seven years ago, uh, focus of the center is to help current and future business leaders embed sustainability core to business strategy to drive better financial performance as well as better societal performance. And we do that through educational programs, through research, through engagement with companies, through thought leadership. And we've done a lot of research, which we'll talk about later, looking at, for example, board credentials on ESG or reporting challenges or how you do embed sustainability or what is the business case for sustainability and how do you better track it. And again, uh, delighted to have worked uh, with SAP in the work that they're doing, which I think is fascinating. And also actually with Tata earlier when I ran Rainforest Alliance, we worked with Tetley quite 
quite a lot. The, the stars have aligned in, in bringing this panel together <laughs> is, is great. Listening, obviously, to what Pranik and Anita have shared, does that resonate with those businesses that you're advising? Well, what I think is so fascinating about their two businesses is that as they both mentioned, they're working with sustainability and climate as both a risk to be managed, which is critical for themselves and for their clients, but also as a business opportunity. This transformation, which is urgent and scary <laughs> um, and tough, is also something that there is huge opportunity for businesses to get behind and huge problems for them to solve. So companies like SAP and TCS that are developing those tools and strategies and support for companies, I think, will themselves create competitive advantage out of that, as well as be force multipliers to move us faster, right, to tackle the challenges that all the big brands that work with them, absolutely, it's an existential crisis. They've got to chat. They've got to tackle them. And this is all new, right? All learning. As well as SAP, at the impact, I will tell you, I think they are learning as well. But always providing that kind of innovation, which is also the exciting part of sustainability, I think. You, you mentioned just before about research that, that you guys do. You, you've done some research into the credentials within ESG credentials within boards at, at various different companies. Can you share some of those findings? Yeah, we looked at the Fortune 100 board members, 1,188 of them. And what we found is that only three had climate credentials. <laughs> only eight had cybersecurity credentials, just to give you a sense of two issues that are really critical for virtually all industries. So we looked at property and casualty, for example, where if you're not understanding climate, you are at risk. No board members with any kind of background or ability to ask the questions. Now, it's not that we need climate scientists on our boards, but we need to have board members who understand that this is an imperative and that and, and know how to ask the right question. That are also set up a governance mechanisms where you have either ESG embedded into your various committees, including nominating and audits and strategy, et cetera, or you have, and or you could do both, have a separate ESG committee that's really actively engaged with the leadership of the company, acts as champions, and also helps with decisions related to things like capital allocation, right? Because often we see that um, that gets stuck when companies are trying to make investments to move ahead on climate or other things. And also that can tie ESG to compensation, right? That also is a board decision, at least at the executive level. Um, and you know, one of the ways I tell that a company, whether a company is actually embedded sustainability, no matter what they say, is whether ESG is actually reflected in the incentives and if there is a process to assess capital allocation related to sustainability. So those are some of the things that we've been looking at in terms of the board governance issues. Anita, you were nodding along to a lot of that. Yes, absolutely. It strongly resonates with what we have seen in the fast movers, I would say. The companies who are really serious about, you know, really delivering on their climate ambitions. And I'm sure many of them made it to the list. But looking at how closely you are tracking the risks in the remuneration, right? Looking at the climate pricing, how deeply you are embedding each of those metrics close to your financial accounting statements show that you're really serious about solving this problem. And, and for us at SAP, it's an opportunity that with these leaders in the industry, we can learn what kind of technologies do the massive industry need, right? Because they can help us define, here are the key capabilities that tomorrow's business leaders need to get the visibility on how they perform on the ESG metrics. The accountability was, I think, heard a lot for a time at COP27 that it's good enough to have those ambitions, but unless you are truly nailing down how do you make it accountable with each of your business executives, with your partners, as well as with your you know, customers, 
which might be also, in, by the way, in, in, in pre-competition mode with you. But now for delivering on those ambitions, right? Accountability asks for these players to come together and then act on, you know, on their targets together. So absolutely, this is what we've seen the majority of the customers doing. And, and we are in this journey together that hopefully that, you know, as these brands strive to make a difference, we can, you know, play a small part there. I'd love to ask a question for the other three here. Um, a couple of you, or I think maybe all of you have mentioned partnerships. And I just think it's so interesting to look at so much innovation happening in literally competitors um, joining together through consortiums, through initiatives to tackle this. To your points about not no single company or technology or sector being able to, to tackle this alone. I mean, I think virtually every sector, right? I've seen the uh, sustainable hospitality alliance. There's something really interesting in beauty happening, the Eco Beauty Score Consortium. We've seen competitors, Nestle and Danone, part of an R&D consortium now focused on innovation and sustainable packaging. I just wonder, if, would love to hear some thoughts from the, the group on that. This area of ESG is a little bit unique in the sense that unlike, as you mentioned, right, unlike in other business practices, companies have realized that the only way to really execute or implement the goals that they have set is through partnership. Because we are talking about entire business value chain. We are not just talking about business operations. Right. And that is the way they solve the challenges. And the other aspect I would like to suggest is that a lot of the companies that are really being recognized for their efforts is not only being recognized because what they are doing for their business. They are being recognized because I think through what they are doing, they are setting an innovative example for how to do it for everyone else. Right. So you look at some of the companies that are in the list, you will see that they are really pioneering, right? Whether in terms of uh, supply chain data, whether in terms of new products aligned with ESG business operations, right? So those are the kind of thing that can only happen through partnership when you think about that entire value chain and not just your operations. Just to, to add to that in terms of, so again, I agree, partnerships are critical because these challenges are so huge, new, um, require a partnership to engage. And I think um, there's a lot of interesting leadership in this space, you know, everything from how do you engage with your supply chain, right? Because on the supply chain in the past, it's been about optimizing it, reducing cost, creating a transactional relationship, right? You give me the stuff at this price point at this time or otherwise go away. <laughs> and 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 that's that's a problem because our global supply chains are very sensitive, non-resilient with the way they've been set up. And we've seen that in the pandemic. But we also saw in the pandemic that those companies that had created more of a sustainability engagement with their suppliers had more transparency into their supply chain had more of a partnership and a collaboration. And those supply chain partners, A, wanted to work with them, B, were healthier because of that kind of engagement, right? Um, and I, I would say there's just, I mean, I would give you another example of a company like Nespresso that's done so much work with partners, right? Partnered, and the way I know them is through Rainforest Alliance, partnered with Rainforest Alliance to build a sustainability standard, partnered with the Federation of Coffee Producers to train coffee farmers, partnered with Fair Trade to get pensions to coffee farmers, partnered with IUCN to come up with an aluminum recycling 
protocol. I mean, all of those are partnerships to solve for the particular challenges and opportunities that Nespresso saw in coffee, as an example. I think I can build a bit uh, on both the examples you mentioned, Tansi. So the three kind of partnerships which are very exciting for SAP, right? Some of them we are participating in and the others were just announced at COP27. Uh, the first one, supply chain engagement, by far the most important topic for most of the supply chain actors that we work with. Because if we can get the transparency on emissions across the supply chain, that's a huge benefit for our customers. So that's number one that we work on. That is the WBCSD, where we have approximately 80 biggest brands who are sharing their carbon data right from the raw materials, the entire suppliers down to the final detergent, which comes out, right? So getting that carbon transparency, and we've done that testing across technologies. And it was a great announcement we also released at COP27. So A, working on the data transparency, but together with the supply chain actors, no matter which industry you come from, because scope three emissions is a very high priority, whether you look at SEC, whether you look at ISSP. So scope three is a very high priority and we want to work with methodology, you know, uh, people as well as providing technology. So that's the first kind of partnership. The second kind of partnership that we are working on is within an industry, the top four miners of the world or the top automated companies of the world, they're all running SAP. They are looking at specific systemically challenges which are low-hanging fruits, which can help them move forward. So how do we partner with these industries to create scenarios and models which can help them move forward? And third, and the final one, which SAP is not part of, but I'm personally excited. So when you see CDP shaking hands with ISSP to have the rigor of finance coming in CDP disclosures, or when you hear CDB bringing in plastics starting from next year, that just shows that if the industry, if the, the biggest brands of the world can bring this ESG transparency in as auditable way as possible, even if we start with limited assurance, it's a huge step in the step of accountability. And these kind of partnerships excite us because then we have a goal clear in front of us on what technologies to execute on. So I think these are some of the partnerships that we are being part of, you know, and we are thrilled that, you know, we, we're getting an opportunity to actually shape, you know, as these standard makers are working together. And Anita, you've mentioned COP27 a couple of times. I mean, was there anything else that kind of arose from, from that event? Um, any proposed outcomes that brands should be taking notice of? Um, I think I have mentioned most of the point. The only point I would mention is the disparity of action between developed countries and developing countries, right? And because SAP is a global company, we have to acknowledge that our customers have a global footprint. When we work on them, on their sustainability transformation, we have to go down into what makes sense for what region. So having global set targets, it's fine, but we also want to work with them on how do you execute in growth markets versus you know, those markets were already developed? What kind of partnerships make sense? What kind of data is available in each of these markets and so on? So I think uh, the feedback that we had was focus on accountability, get the transparency out so the business leaders can take action. Tansi, you, you recently had a um, article published in the Harvard Business Review um, where you were talking about ESG reports and saying that they're not a replacement for real sustainability. You know, for anyone that hasn't had a chance to see that, you know, can you talk us through the main points that you raised? Unfortunately, and not the case with these companies and many companies, but as some companies come into the sustainability space, they tend to do it as a reaction to a request for disclosure. And so when they do that, 
they basically do a tick the box approach. Let me run around madly and find some ESG data, stick it into the questionnaire and send it back, right? I mean, obviously you can tell from me that I'm skeptical about that approach, but there's a couple of reasons um, why that's problematic. One is that reporting metrics are process and output based. They have to be because at a reporting level, they have to work across all sectors, all regions, all places in the value chain, et cetera. So they, it's very challenging to make them performance-based. So as an example, you will ask a company, um, if you're in the apparel sector, do you have a chemical management policy? That is a sort of SASB metric. That is treated the same as a company that has created a bio-based dye that reduces chemicals, therefore risk, reduces energy use and water use, and creates competitive advantage because you can sell it to the brands. Those two things would show up exactly the same way in a SASB metric because of that reporting focus. So what we need companies to do is to start first with understanding, and SASB or other ISSB as it gets developed, can provide you insight on what are the material ESG issues for your industry. But then you want to identify, as we've heard from our two colleagues, what are the risks and opportunities for you? How do you embed those into your business strategy, not have it be off to the side, right? How do you design, like you would for anything else, key performance indicators that you compensate on, that you track, and then you map those to your reporting metrics? Because your KPIs are not the same as reporting metrics. Your KPIs are going to be you know, my net zero commitments, my water reduction commitments, my DEI commitments, and those are going to be numeric uh, and sometimes qualitative that you're going to be tracking. And then you need to then again, map them to the reporting metrics, but getting confused about reporting metrics being the same as ESG. In fact, all of the data that we've seen, we looked at a thousand plus academic articles assessing sort of correlation between corporate financial performance and ESG, which 58% of the studies found a positive correlation. But we also saw that ESG reporting is not the same thing as performance, right, across many of those studies. Lynn, is this something that uh, you guys consider when you're assessing the companies, um, you know, that feature in the Future Brand Index? Absolutely. This really caught our eye when we saw that piece. Our results are showing the real need for clarity and unpacking and specificity around E for emissions within this larger question of, of E for environment and as we look at environmental measures, we do. It's important to track and understand. We measure that as one key dimension of our index. And we also look at sustainability more broadly as part of a bigger bucket of what we call delivering sustainable value as a business. And that also includes criteria like trust and innovation and respect for employees and, and human well-being. Uh, but we couldn't agree more about the need for more clarity, uh, consistency, and uh, the kind of metrics uh, tracking approach that Tansi is describing. I, I want to bring to your attention, there was an article um, in The Economist earlier this year that said that ESG should be boiled down to one simple measure, and that's um, emissions. And so within the article, it said, so I'm just kind of quoting here, but it said that whilst the E of ESG focuses on environment, uh, that is not precise enough. And then it states the environment is an all-encompassing term, including biodiversity, water scarcity, and so on. By far the most significant danger is from emissions, particularly those generated by carbon belching industries. Put simply, uh, the E should stand not for environmental factors, but for emissions alone. I'm keen to get 
all your thoughts on on that. Anita, maybe uh, we could start with you on this one. Always a controversial topic, but I think for us, you know, looking at E in a broader perspective is important. We don't want to have a narrow emissions picture only. Uh, we've already seen that, you know, there are impacts of, uh, you know, circularity and carbon. The pictures are connected. Social and, and carbon. The pictures are connected. Sustainability has to be seen in a connected way as a connected problem that our customers are going to solve. So for us at SAP, um, we look at E in a, in a holistic way, Russell, and it strongly actually resonates with the, the brands who want to seriously make a change and not who are going for the reporting sake of it. Oh, 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 the first reporting is only on climate disclosure. So let me just focus on climate for the next X number of years. But the the, the brands and and the customers who really intend to change their business models in a systematic way to cause less harm to the environment, by all means, they will consider their water footprint, their social footprint. And I think for those brands, uh, you know, this big picture is much more important than just looking at emissions. Now, that goes without saying, because climate is on top of everybody's mind. That's where everybody starts from. But then, uh, you know, we are not losing the sight of there's a bigger problem there. And let's look at this problem, the pieces in a holistic way together. Prasik? Yes, I think it's a very provocative statement from The Economist. I think it comes, that statement comes from the greenwashing or not being able to really leverage the... The, the importance of ESG from the investment community, right? There is a lot of discussions around, there are a lot of discussions around the ESG rating and all of that and how it kind of really, does it really impact or kind of, let's say, uh, push companies to be really more conscious of their businesses impact on ES and G aspect. And I think the statement probably suggests that because it is so complicated, to E, S, and G all have so many metrics that depends, their materiality depends by sector, by region, all of that. And because it is difficult to kind of really boil all of that down into one or two simple metrics that can be used for investment decision making, maybe let's just simplify that and look at one of the key aspects uh, that is really material to investors. That is my rationale. However, I don't agree with this statement. Here is the reason why. The reason is that for global companies at least, right? E is an aspect, you can think it like this. E is an aspect that basically the materiality of that varies by sector that the company operates in, right? The, the E, the matrix of environmental aspects related to business will be different for an oil company than a financial company and likewise, right? However, the S part, the social part is very regional. And I think that is where the brand association also comes from, right? Brand perception of TCS or any company for that matter in India or in Europe or in the US are not the same, right? Because it is kind of very regional perception of the brand coming to the global uh, kind of uh, standing, right? So I think there are variations in E, S, and G, not only in the matrix and the materiality, but also by region and the importance. And I think economic statement, while probably to simplify and help the investment community to make a little bit better decision and ranking, I don't completely agree that that's how corporate should look at. So I think probably from investment side, maybe, 
but not for corporations when they are thinking about the aspects of ESG as it relates to their individual businesses. Tansi, E is for emissions. What do you think? So I think it's too simplistic. I do think it's intersectional. I do think value is, um, if, if you're concerned about it as well from an investment value creation perspective, there's lots of opportunities in the other areas to improve performance. So as an example, a couple of examples I'll give you. So we worked with a pulp and paper company um, based in the Southeast of the United States. The sustainability manager was concerned about the water use. Pulp and paper uses an enormous amount of water. In the Southeast of the United States, we don't have a water drought problem and we don't have, they don't have to pay for water. So the mill managers pushed back and said, why are you bothering us about water? It's not an issue. He did an analysis and he found out that all that massive amount of water being moved around the mills, heated and cooled and disposed of, right, um, required an enormous amount of energy and enormous amount of waste disposal costs to the tune of $1.5 million annually per mill for all that free water, right? So people are not assessing or understanding, again, the intersectionality of these issues, but also the opportunity to look at this with a whole new lens, right? And where you really need to look at a variety of different issues. I would say, um, you know, another example, we work with the automotive sector. We do a lot of work around the business case for sustainability. And we looked at their the benefits of their waste management strategies. For one company, it was annually $235 million of contribution to EBIT net as a result of their waste management strategies, which included things like recycling paint and solvents. When you recycle paint and solvents, you no longer buy the virgin stuff. You no longer have the waste disposal costs. They had some extra product to sell. So all these operational efficiencies that you can get out of circular approaches, out of waste reduction, out of um, resource reduction use, all really, really critical. And this is just on the E. I could go into the S as well, where we see sort of a focus on employee productivity and retention, right? Returning significant benefits to the bottom line as well. Lynn, just, um, I mean, yeah, taking everything, obviously, that the guys have said in terms of E standing for more than emissions, but how, how significant does emissions sit within the performance of, of the companies on the index? Well, it's, it's clear that this year it is top of mind um, and a, a huge driver, apparently, of brand performance right now. But as I said, it, it all lives within this broader as everyone has commented, ecosystem and interrelationship of the E, broader E, the S and the G as well. And as we advise brand leaders um, across all of these sectors and more, Tansi, Pradek are absolutely right. It, the complex uh, intersectionality of all of this, the variation by sector, by geography, really means that it, it's helpful to step back um, when you're thinking about brand and look at it broadly, almost irrespective of sector or geography. And that's the framework behind the index. It's very much based on the idea that a brand needs to have a clearly defined meaningful purpose that is then pulled through its experience consistently. So brands are created with purpose, but they're really defined by the experience that they deliver every day. So it, that that's a helpful framework as you look across and think about management of the brand over time, that it's all about keeping in balance that what you say and then what you're delivering in the in the real world. Prasik, the obviously there's a number of sectors that are covered in, in the index. Is there a way of looking at who's doing well and, and then can um, those brands and companies from different industries, can they learn from that at all? How can those 
whatever they're doing, how can that be transferred across industry? Yeah, I think as we discussed, the materiality of E, S, and G varies by sector. So that is fairly understood. But however, there is obviously there is a lot of opportunity to really learn from different sectors, right? So uh, manufacturing and industrial uh, sector companies, I would say, are much advanced in really figuring out the supply chain related ESG data management. Not perfect, but advanced. And then financial sector, for example, right, is one where they need to really understand if we think about just E and the emission in E, for example, then they really need to understand the impact of scope three emissions of their finance emissions, right? And they don't, I don't think financial industry still has a as good a handle on the supply chain, finance emission supply chain data. So this is just an example, right? That there is clearly, for example, a learning opportunity for financial sector from the industrial sector in terms of how to manage supply chain data, right? Specifically as it relates to emissions. So, and there are many more examples across social aspect and likewise. So, yeah, absolutely. I think there are there are significant opportunities. The other one I will very quickly mention is the product innovation, right? There are many opportunities across sectors where they can learn or going back to the idea of partnership, they can partner. There are, we see significant uh, kind of momentum in cross-sector partnership what we call business ecosystem, which is beyond your conventional business ecosystem, right? Where they are connecting with with each other, right? Like insurance companies connecting with, for example, auto companies directly at a dealership level, for example, and offering embedded insurance, for example, right? That basically enables behavior-based incentives for, let's say, a sustainable lifestyle, for example, right? Both in terms of your reporting part, but as also in terms of business aspects, there are many learnings to be shared and used across sectors. Well, I, I think uh, the only other sector I, I might comment on is the energy and utilities sector, given the events in Russia and Ukraine bringing concerns about where energy comes from, even more to the forefront than ever. Since 2018, we've seen a steady increase in performance in this sector, but this year, five of the seven brands in the index rose. And we we thought it was of interest. There were really two types. One set rose because they have a longstanding focus on green energy. So this is next era in Reliance, for example. Um, The second was those with a fossil fuel heritage seen as getting credit for being in the process of pivoting successfully to a more sustainable approach. So there we see Aramco in PetroChina for example. So just as you click into the data and and investigate, um, you start to see some interesting dynamics like that come to the fore in that sector. Tansi, how is um, the buying behavior affected, whether that's consumer or B2B purchases? How is that all impacted by the factors that we're discussing? So this is one of the things that I got very interested in running Rainforest Alliance because I kept hearing about the green gap. You know, people saying they're going to buy more sustainable product and then companies saying, well, they weren't or they weren't willing to pay a premium, et cetera. So I got to start and said, where's the data? And actually, all the data was surveys, surveying whether they were going to buy it and surveying whether they actually bought it, which, you know, notoriously sort of fallible. So we have partnered with IRI, which collects um, a market research firm, which collects all of our barcode data at retail in the United States, everything from mom and pop shops to Target and Amazon, bricks and mortar, as well as e-commerce. 
what we and we're looking at this every year starting in 2019 we looked 5 years back from 2019 and we've again been doing it every year what we found uh, most recently in 2021 is that while sustainably marketed products were only about 17% of the total they were responsible for 32% of the growth at a 28% premium across 36 of 40 CPG categories and looking at th- hundreds of thousands of SKUs we also found that one out of every two new products introduced and sold into CPG in 2021 had sustainability attributes. Turning to climate, we saw that in 2021, $3.7 billion of carbon-labeled product was sold. In 2020, it was $1.3 billion. In 2019, it was next to nothing, right? So rapid growth in, in, that, in this sector Um, rapid growth in demand by customers. We also saw that customers are far less price sensitive to sustainable products, not all categories, but many of the categories. And we also see even in areas where the category might be seen as fully saturated. So for yogurt, 70% of all yogurt has some type of sustainability claim. And yet sustainably marketed yogurt is growing at around 8%. Conventional yogurt is growing at minus 10%. So even when you have such penetration, people are still choosing to buy the sustainable product and at a 50% premium, by the way. Rasek, a lot of what we're talking about today, this all comes down to budget and funding, doesn't it? I, we see this, and I'm sure, I mean, Tenzi uh, also, that financial sector is whether you want to call it behind the door or in front, but are really a driver in making sure that right amount of asset is allocated towards right innovation and in the right direction. And there is a lot huge debate going on around how to incorporate ESG in the investment decision-making, as we also briefly mentioned. But we also see that financial sector whether these are asset managers, uh, investment advisors, or banks, or insurance companies, at different maturity level, they have all recognized that this is something that they need to really uh, critically think about. That is not to say that they have really, uh, all of them have really meaningfully started working on it. My point is that financial sector is in my mind, one of the most important sectors in really making sure that, number one, the risk from climate change to the financial system are clearly communicated to everyone, to all stakeholders. And I think they have a huge role to play. And for them themselves to really make sure that they incorporate this risk, uh, they price this risk, valuation in uh, any of the business that they do. Right now, most of them are really at the governance and strategy level and are trying to figure out how to implement. Uh, But yeah, absolutely. I think basically the buck, that's where it stops, I think. Anita Tonsi, you know, just adding to to what Pratik was saying there, how are we going to make this all integral to doing business? Well, I think there's a variety of different ways. I'm going to focus on making sure that companies, board members, Corporate leaders and investors understand that sustainability is not a nice-to-have, it's a must-have, and in fact, will drive better performance for the company. Um, And that's across the E, the S, and the G. Uh, And we, through our return on sustainability investment work, ROSI, as we call it, um, have found that 
Um, when you embed sustainability, you drive innovation, you drive operational efficiency, you drive risk mitigation, you drive employee engagement, you drive customer loyalty, you drive supplier resiliency. In fact, sustainability is that next wave of total quality management, right? When implemented well, not when done as a reporting exercise. Um, and that's where we need to see both investors understand that because right now they're managing just ESG metrics. They're just saying, you know, like, I mean, not all of them. They're just saying, oh, let me take the top percent or this kind of percent and this thing. And and you know we know notoriously that that you know that data is is not terribly useful it's somewhat useful but not very useful so we need to have investors better understand the strategic benefits and imperative of sustainability and how it drives better management as well as boards as well as corporate leaders and i think that will really enable business to scale up more quickly cuz that's what we have right now we have people we've got the solutions we've got the commitment we're not doing it fast enough. And to do fast enough, we need far more capital, far more support to move this ahead in an expedited way. This strongly resonates with what Shastansi summarized. But for us, you know, scaling is exactly the problem that we want to solve uh, with our customers. And ultimately, every decision that you take at every part, you know, within your enterprise, with your suppliers, with your customers, that decision is made on your ESG data. And that ESG data must be true to it, not for reporting purposes, for the right purposes. If you, are in, if you are including recycled content into your raw materials, put that data out there, work with your suppliers to get on that journey. If you're investing in new markets, look at the social aspects, right? And at each point, Plonsi uh, gave a brilliant example of carbon labeling, right? If you have the carbon numbers there, prove it. They are actually calculated in the right way. So I think for us, data is everything. How our customers manage their enterprise? How do they work with their end customers to really drive on the overall sustainability targets? Is 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 how we embed it, and and you know that's how we continuously think that you know by bringing the the people, the processes behind it, the technology aspects, we can really start to scale, and that's where we will truly achieve our sustainability ambitions. Alim, we gave you the first word. I'll let you have the uh, last one. Uh, what are the key lessons that brands uh, can learn from this year's Future Brand Index? I think it's clear, as the guests have spoken uh, about, it's time to put purpose in practice. ESG is clearly more and more part of the public consciousness, as shown in our index. It's clear that is no longer enough to have a meaningful purpose, to say you will take action. Today, it's critical to both embed sustainability, as we've talked about, and to really be seen more more broadly as a company that fulfills its promises, that is fair and honest, that treats people fairly, that actively contributes to society and to the health of the planet at large. So I really appreciate the guest today's sharing some very tangible uh, ideas for how brand leaders can do that. If listeners want to download a copy of the 2022 Future Brand Index and uh, maybe register interest for the next one, um, where do they need to go? Very easy. Futurebrand.com. It's right there at the top of our homepage. Easy to find. 
Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks again to Pratik, uh, Anita, Tansi and Lynn. Uh, we'd love to hear your comments on today's chat. You can do that by sharing them on the Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram or Twitter feeds, or you can do it in the comments on the YouTube version of this podcast. Uh, those are all linked from the top of our website at csuitepodcast.com, uh, where you'll also find all the previous shows and supporting show notes, plus links to where you can follow us for automatic downloads of each episode via the likes of Spotify and Apple. If you've liked what you've heard, uh, please do give us a positive rating and review. Uh, we're, of course, available on all podcast apps. Just search for the C-Suite Podcast and hit follow or subscribe. And finally, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, uh, you can do that via the contact form on the website as well, or you can connect with me on Twitter using at Russ Goldsmith, or you can find me on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.